We have two main passages this morning that I'll be referring to throughout the sermon. The first is in Genesis chapter 2, and the second is in one of the Gospels in Mark chapter 2, and I'll give you a moment to turn there. As you do, I, this seems as fitting a place to put it as anywhere, but I do think it's important now and again to make certain statements publicly. And this morning, the statement I wish to make is my gratitude to the church, above all to the Lord, and to Reverend Smith in particular. Calling an associate pastor can be a tenuous thing because you do wonder how they get along and will the ministry be blessed? I think it's important to just state sometimes, yes, we do, and it's been wonderful, and the Lord has been blessing uh, me personally through the relationship I've been able to have with Reverend Smith, and it has been a joy, I think I can speak for the whole council, to see growth in him, but even beyond growth, is just he's very effective, and he does what you ask when we ask people to do it. That's a rare gift. So... Anyways, uh, very appreciative, and I think about that in light of sometimes the difficulty. We're facing a, a challenge in finding the, the person who fits and who's available for our Westside plant. Be thankful for what we do have. We, we have a church with a very high degree of stability. Not all churches have that, so we're grateful this morning. Now, maybe you weren't here last week. Maybe you'd be benefited to know where we're at. We've been in a series going through the Bible and looking at the doctrine of Human anthropology. In other words, what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be an image bearer of God's character and of uh, an agent of carrying out his will in the world? And last week, we looked a little bit at how the Lord authorized human beings. He called them, he gave them authority to exercise what the Bible describes as dominion in the world. Basically, to take creation and to extend its habitability and its bounty so that godly image bearers would fill the world and bring glory to him. And so we were made, part of what it means to be human is we were made to carry out work. Work is not a hellish thing. Some of the drudgery of it may be, but it's a gift. On the other hand, this morning, we turn and we see that God also created us for a kind of restful worship. It's not all work. There is this other side of rest. And in fact, the rest is represented as enduring in ways that the work is not. And that rest as we meet it in the Bible is not just physical rest. It's a holy kind of rest. And it's often described by the word Sabbath. So we're going to be considering the principles of Sabbath this morning, beginning at Genesis chapter 2 in the creation week. Hear the word of the Lord with me, verses 2 and 3. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And now Mark chapter 2, Jesus is addressing the accusations of some religious leaders who say that he has violated the principle of the Sabbath. Because of what we're going to see here, he was allowing his disciples to pluck grain and eat on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, beginning of verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time before his word. Our Father, we're gathered here this day not by our own will or invention, but because you purposed that one day in seven would ordinarily be set aside for the people to gather. And we thank you that from the time of Christ and the apostles, you have allowed us the opportunity to come and commemorate Christ's death and its implications. We pray that you would give us insight and understanding as we consider the scriptures, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would not simply enlighten us to know the truth, but that you would incline us to want to do the true things that we meet. All this we ask in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. The English word Sabbath, it's not one that we encounter very often, and it comes from a Hebrew term, which basically means to cease from activity. Sometimes, certain contexts, that means a total cessation of activity. Think about somebody going to sleep, and they're not intentionally at that point doing anything. But also, the word is often used in the Bible to describe ceasing from one kind of activity, so that you can focus on another kind of activity, or maybe a set of activities. Even in the past few months, most of you are aware, I took a sabbatical, and the purpose of that sabbatical is not to just sit in my bed all day long, but to get some things done that are out of the ordinary course of the work. Even so, when we look in the Gospels and we see Jesus talking about Sabbath, we find him making an argument for why he can do works of mercy on the Sabbath, from this idea, saying every kind of activity is not forbidden. In fact, on the Lord's Day, or on a Sabbath day, under the Old Covenant, it would be appropriate to do works of mercy. And so Sabbath is ceasing from particular kinds of work to give attention to other things. Now, what is the biblical idea of Sabbath? Overall, I'm speaking in generalities here, there's a huge subject. In fact, I even brought with me This would be considered a very, very small book on the doctrine of Sabbath. A very small book. And a very good one, but you can go at great length. Basically, the biblical idea of Sabbath is that most commonly it has to do with setting apart one day in seven differently from the others. The language used, say, in the King James is that God hallowed the seventh day. Or he blessed it. He set it apart. That's what it means to treat it as distinct. When we look through the Bible in general, what it means to treat a day as a Sabbath day means, on the one hand, to not on that day do ordinary or needless labor, not give ourselves to needless topics of conversation or amusement. On the other hand, that's just putting it negatively. Positively, it means to devote ourselves to corporate and private forms of spiritual devotion, worship, fellowship, 
and service. And so that's the basic idea of the biblical Sabbath. I want to deal with a fact that I think many of you are aware of. Some of our younger people are not yet. Many Christians do not regard Sabbath as applying to Christians. They think that's just an old covenant idea. That's like a Jewish thing. In fact, my first experience of something like Sabbatarianism was exactly through the vector of a Jewish business. I wanted to buy some piece of equipment. This was back in my early 20s. I knew that there was this one camera store, highly recommended. This was on a Saturday evening. And I thought I'd hop on the internet and purchase this item. And I found that their business did not even operate on the internet on Saturday evening. And that's because they're Jewish and they're trying to honor the Sabbath as they see it. And so I remember thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I don't do anything like that. I I saw myself as just having no doctrine of Sabbath. For that reason, often Christians who seek to be Sabbatarian will be looked on, not just by the world, but by other Christians as legalistic. Maybe you've experienced that. Oh, that's kind of legalistic that you don't do certain things on Sunday. Now, of course, you can be legalistic about it if you make that how you think you are justified by God or if you add to the principles of Scripture a bunch of rules that are not found there. However, I'm going to lay before you today what I believe is the teaching of the Bible, that to be human, to be human is to stand in need of the kind of rest that is given to us according to the principles of the fourth commandment, according to Sabbath. And because that's just part of what it means to be human, God urges you to structure your life around his principles of rest and worship. And I warn you, the Lord will punish you if you don't. I don't usually say that just so blankly, but he will. How will he punish you? By allowing you to not experience the blessings of rest and worship. That's usually how the judgment comes as it relates to Sabbath, where we neglect Rest and worship, we get all the consequences of not being in rest and worship. Now, as we look at this doctrine, we're going to do so under two main lessons. First, we're going to look at this lesson, that the principles apply to all people. And I want you to see that from the Bible. This is not just for Israel. This is for you in particular. If we had more time, if we were in private, I'd use your name, and I'd use my name. These principles are for all people right up to today. Secondly, I want to lay before you the fact that God has given good purposes for the Sabbath. It's not just an arbitrary rule. Okay, I get it, it applies. But we should desire, desire to use the Sabbath in God's way because it's actually for our blessing. And then finally, we'll conclude with just a little bit of pastoral counsel. How do we actually improve in a world like ours, try to improve our use of the Sabbath? So let's start with that first main lesson. The principles of weekly Sabbath apply to all people not just other people in the past. And begin with Jesus' words in Mark chapter 2. Look with me again at verse 27. The Sabbath, Jesus says, was made for man. He doesn't say Jewish men. He makes it as universal as it could possibly be. And I realize I'm stating something obvious, and yet it's not obvious, is it, by the way that many people live. If we continue to be mankind, then we continue to need whatever is given to us in the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not simply one ethnic people for one period of time. You could say, well, wasn't it symbolic in some way? 
We'll come to that. But the essential principle continues. The need continues. The Sabbath was made for man. When did God make the Sabbath? As we saw in Genesis chapter 2, God's very first act after having made man is to cease from further acting in creation. From the very beginning, this is the gift to human beings. What does God do? We find that right after he creates man, he then takes a whole day to simply observe what he's done, to enjoy it, to recognize its goodness. It's a day largely of observation and blessing, and he pronounces blessing upon all things on that day. Why does he do it? Well, obviously it's not because he had need of rest. God is not like us. He doesn't, he's not, you know, the sun. No, but he made us to image him. He made us to image him. And so it was important from the very beginning to show us, you're not just going to work. You are going to copy me by resting. Of course, that raises questions. Adam was made, you know, in in an unfallen world. Did he need rest? I'll tell you, I'm persuaded he did. I believe he did need rest. And we'll come back to that. But little is recorded about the period from Adam to the time of Moses. Ever wonder about that? The Bible doesn't tell us whether or to what extent Adam, after the fall, maintained a habit of weekly rest. And that shouldn't surprise us even if he didn't. Sin enters in and it just demolishes everything it sees. It takes this beautiful painting that God had made, and while the paint is still wet, it just smears its hand across it. What we do see as we look into history is that from a very early time, human beings began to neglect true worship. They began to neglect setting aside frequent time for that. And in some ways, worse, they began to oppress one another, not just to neglect it themselves, but to prevent one another from entering into the blessings of physical and spiritual rest. One of the most egregious instances that I think many of us are familiar with is simply what happened to God's people while they were in Egypt. They didn't go down to Egypt with a plan to become enslaved. They went down seeking refuge from famine. And here's a people who are displaced by chaos in their home place. They are sojourners in another land, and the people in that land say, we can dominate them. Let's put them to work. And take away from them proper rest and proper time for worship. Notably, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, says something that I think many of us, myself included, are forgetful of when we think about the Exodus story. Most of us are, to some extent, familiar with the Exodus story. And what we imagine is this. We imagine Moses goes down there and he says, God said, let my people go, because that's how it was in some movie that we saw. But what does the Bible actually say? Initially, the Lord does not tell Moses to tell Pharaoh that all of Israel is going to come out permanently. Initially, God tells Moses to simply tell Pharaoh, let my people take a three-day journey into the wilderness and have a day of rest and feasting. That's what it says in Exodus 5 verse 1. We could understand perhaps a bit more if Moses just came down straight away and said, all of your labor force is leaving, how Pharaoh would lose his mind. That would be a bit more understandable. At first, God simply demands that they have an opportunity to take a a day off, a Sabbath, a day of worship. And Pharaoh says, no, 
What if they leave me? What if, I don't trust it. Even one day, so the, the cause of war, the, the causus bellum for God's intervention with Egypt, formally, is their refusal to grant Sabbath. When God then, with that in the background, when God restores the practice of a weekly Sabbath to Israel at Sinai, that's not bondage upon Israel. Yes, there were aspects of the Old Covenant way of doing Sabbath that were relatively heavy, but none of it was heavier than what they had been in. God had given them the Sabbath for relief and for protection from anyone who would try to legitimize burdening laborers where there's no opportunity for a break. Under the laws God gave it to Israel, even if you had servants who were indentured for seven years, you had to give them a day off for rest and worship. Even the cattle got a break. Even the land got a break. And so this was not just for one people at one time. It's rooted in what we are as people, people who need rest. What about after Jesus up to today? Now I'll tell you, it is not at all my intention in this sermon to lay out the case for why God moved the ordinary practice of the church from what it was sundown to sundown, Friday to Saturday, to what it is now traditionally practiced as the Lord's Day, as being Sunday, the day of the Lord. I've done that in other sermons, and I can happily help anyone who needs clarity on that. What I do want to state is that although, on the one hand, the New Testament, the New Covenant does abrogate, does change some of the uh, non-essential aspects of how we fulfill God's will, Jesus upholds the abiding character of the essence of the law. Remember, the fourth commandment is within the Ten Commandments that Jesus says, in summary, is love. There's some abiding moral essence in every one of those commands. You can't just take one and throw it out. None of them are, you know, it's not like, you know, I believe in just nine of them. All of them have weight. And again, Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man. Christians have not ceased to be human, even if the world thinks at times we have. We need Sabbath. Now, having stated that, I realize it's not at great length, but what's the purpose? Why has God given these principles to us of setting aside ordinarily one day in seven, if we are to image him, if we are to reflect him? And that's what I want to bring us to now as our second main lesson here. All of the purposes God gives are good, and they are all necessary. All of the purposes are good and necessary. I'm going to start with the most obvious one. We've already touched on it. And so I'm not going to belabor it as much because it is obvious. We are finite creatures, and on this side of glory, all creatures need rest physically. We all have a need for rest, and particularly humans. Just like some animals can go many weeks or even years without drinking, but humans can only go a few days. Even so, humans need regular rest. What happens to a person even just if you don't get enough sleep? I've read that clinically, after seven days of no sleep, you are declared clinically insane. I can believe it by the few times that I and other young people tried to Stay up too long. I tried to make it three days. We were designed in such a way that we need a reset. Some people look back at 
the time before the fall, and they wonder, did maybe Adam didn't need rest. I would suggest to you, study 1 Corinthians 15 more closely. 1 Corinthians 15 contrasts Adam before the fall with Christ after the resurrection. Adam before the fall with Christ after the resurrection. And the comparison is a tent to a temple. Going from that which is weak by nature to that which is made to be permanent. My point is not to say that Adam would have died. God covenanted to keep him alive. But God made him in such a way that he needs food, he needs rest. Perhaps in glory we will have no such need. But here we have need of it. And so God wants everybody to have that break. What about the spiritual side? And I think this is very important. Sabbath is not simply about the physical aspect. In fact, arguably, it's mostly about the spiritual aspect. Mostly. Prior to the fall, what was the function of having this one day in seven? I'm going to try to put something before you as simply as I can. Many others have stated it before me. I think I I could only wish to be as clear as them. The way that one of our theologians in our tradition put it, just a, a beautiful little statement, Gerhardus Voss stated it this way. He said, eschatology precedes soteriology. What is that saying there? Eschatology is our belief about final things, about glory, the age to come, new creation. Eschatology has to do with that, the final, most glorious state ultimate things. Soteriology has to do with our need of salvation. What does that mean? And eschatology precedes soteriology, or to put it differently, eschatology preceded soteriology. Voss was not at all alone. He's just vanilla within the Reformed and really the broader Christian tradition. This idea, even before Adam fell, something even greater was being held out to him. See, the problem is we often imagine the garden like that was the highest state of things. It couldn't possibly be better. That is not what the Bible teaches. Adam was created in a covenantal situation where God condescended. God didn't have to promise him anything. But God condescended to promise blessing. At minimum, had Adam fulfilled what we call the probationary period, the the time of testing, had he been faithful, he would have been confirmed in righteousness such that he could never fall. That's what's promised to us who believe in Jesus Christ, right? Why are you not going to ever fall back into sin after glory? It's not because God is just so blessed to have people who are so committed for eternity. God will confirm us in righteousness. That was being held out to Adam as a blessing for obedience. The way that Adam related to the Sabbath day, that day of rest, was in part to understand that his work was working towards the hope of everlasting rest. And the book of Hebrews tells us that it was a figure. That day of rest was a figure of everlasting rest. Adam did not do that, of course. After the fall, the Sabbath takes on an additional character. After the fall, we could say a lot about Israel and how they related to Sabbath, but after the fall, it becomes an opportunity for us on this day of rest to recognize, one, we have not done the work required of us. We haven't done it. We've all broken God's law. We are all sinners. We don't have a right to the rest that is subsequent. 
The rest that really is truly everlasting life, blessing, heaven, new creation. We don't have a right to that. But on this day, we remember God is the God who created all things and has all power. It calls us back to creation. And then it calls us to new creation. God is the God who has given us Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the new creation. It's meant on this day to recalibrate us, to recenter us upon who we are in Jesus Christ. On this day, you say to yourself, Christ has finished the work that Adam did not do. Christ has finished the work, and in Christ, spiritually, I'm going to rest by faith. I'm not doing anything to try to earn or merit God's favor. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 puts it this way. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying that earthly Sabbath was just a picture. There's a further rest. It's spiritual. What does it matter at all for you if you were perfect in your practice of Sabbath outwardly, but you don't rest in Christ by faith? That just as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that you rest in him and say, it is finished, I am redeemed. What would happen if you do rest in that? Then it means that the work that flows out of this day is based upon gratitude. It's rooted in rest. That's one of the reasons historically why Christians saw it as fitting that our day of rest would begin on the first day of the week with the resurrection of Christ. It is notable if you look at the end of the Gospels, if you look in the book of Acts, it's notable when they gathered to worship. Every single instance of the many times that Jesus appears with his disciples when he comes among them physically after his resurrection, every single time it tells us what day it was, it is on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. As if to underscore to us from this point forward in redemptive history, this is when God's people should expect Christ to be gathering with us. Though he is bodily in glory, he is with us in spirit. And we are the body of Christ. We come together. And so the purpose is to bring us back and to calibrate us upon the promises of the gospel. It's not just about physical rest. It's about hope. And then I'd only add to that, one of the purposes is it's a day when it is acceptable and encouraged to show mercy. We find Jesus defending, for instance, even animals. Animal falls in a pit on the Lord's day on Sabbath. Of course, you can pull the animal out. And so to do good for people, how much better is that? And so I would never want to give the impression that on this day you, you can't have people over to your home for a meal. Or you can't bring meals to others or go work at a soup kitchen. Works of mercy are treated as acceptable because God has never ceased from showing mercy to us. So we've seen at this point, we've seen the principle applies to everybody. The purposes are all good. What I want to do with what time we have left, I want to offer some pastoral counsel. Some of this is just that. It is my opinion. And weigh it with the opinion of others. Because our, as you'll see if you ever get to know our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism in particular, we are not overly specific on all that is forbidden and allowed on the Lord's Day. There are other historical traditions like Westminster Confession. 
a lot more explicit about what is or is not acceptable. We are not. We believe the Bible is, has given a certain range of freedom. On the other hand, that means that people have different ideas of what is wise and how to make the best use of this. The first bit of counsel I give you as your pastor, do not, brothers and sisters, try to be wiser than God about your needs or the needs of others. I have to say that right back to myself. Don't try to be wiser than God. No, 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 but it really has to get done. And soon you build a habit where everything seems so necessary on the Lord's Day. Don't try to be wiser than God. That's not just for yourself, but for others in your home, your spouse, your children, maybe roommates that you have, and maybe it's employees that you have. I ask you to look back on the past 150 years. Some of you are more familiar historically. Others of you are perhaps younger or not as familiar just with the way that the church has, I was going to say progressed. I don't think that's the right word in this context. But how have things gone over the past 150 years? First, we began to forsake dedicating the entire day to the Lord. It's almost unimaginable to people living in our time that in the time of our great-grandparents, most people did have this idea that they ought to be dedicating the whole day to the Lord. Even if they weren't walking Christians, they felt, yeah, that, that is what I should be doing. That was the first thing to go, the idea that the entire day is the Lord's. It's not the Lord's hour. It is the Lord's day. Next, we gradually excused the neglect of corporate worship. We saw less and less importance there. So that, you know, if I go to church once a month or every few months or Easter and Christmas, you know, that's sufficient. And we're missing the purpose there. But that came to be more and more normal in our culture. Then, within the last 50 years, Christians, I'm not talking about, my point here is not to advocate for blue laws and all of that. I'm talking about Christians and what we do. Within the last 50 years, it became normal for Christians to patronize unnecessary business and forms of entertainment on the Lord's Day that specifically compete with the ability of people to gather in worship. For me to go there and do that means those people can't be here doing this. And I'll be the first to say, I've done this. I've done this. And sometimes it's because you didn't make appropriate plans in advance. Sometimes it's just because you're lazy, and many times it's just you weren't thinking about it. You didn't think about the implications. Or you say, well, they're not Christians. They don't come here anyway. I'm not here making a case that if we just do this, the whole culture will change all at once. Culture changes as lots of local places try to be faithful, which means the only hope, relatively speaking, is, humanly speaking, is for us to be faithful. But forget the bigger, broader culture. When you look that person in the eye who's not a believer and who's unable to attend worship on the Lord's Day, it will be good if you, with a clean conscience, can tell them, look, I wish you could be there, and I'm doing what I can to try to make that the case. I'm not saying be you know, hold this out as some moral platform for yourself. But do what you can to create those circumstances. And I ask you, in the past 150 years that we have gone on this trajectory, has society been measurably improved? Has the church been measurably improved 
in its sanctity and its otherworldliness and its devotion? Absolutely not. Very, it's not even arguable. It's a fact. As a generality, the professing church has never been at a lower ebb in the past 500 years than in the time since forsaking the regular hallowing of one day in seven. That's not an accident. God promises to bless those who make much of him as his image bearers. And to those who will not, he gives them what they asked for, to be more and more burdened with the things of this world, to be more and more anxious, to be less and less satisfied with the eternal things because you're so preoccupied with these things. I want to speak very plainly to a few categories of people. There are those here who are employers. And I want to urge you, although I don't know how to run your business, I want to urge you, do what is in your power to give maximal freedom to your employees to have a minimum of one day off a week from work and preferably to synchronize that with worship, especially if they desire that. If you have the means to give people such freedom, do it. Well, you know, this will cut into the bottom line. We have very different bottom lines, apparently. You will give an account to the Lord, and this is the same Lord who tells his people, test me, try me, see if I don't open the heavens up and pour out blessing on those who seek me in this way. When what you want is God's pleasure more than profit, you will get what you want. What about those who are employees and who find that they are coerced, you know, under fear of losing position or job, if they don't work on the Lord's Day? I do want to state the Bible recognizes that there are cases of need. For instance, firemen, that's a classic example. Fires don't stop on the Lord's Day. Somebody has to take care of certain things. If you are an employee and your job does not give you sufficient time to rest and give you Sunday off for worship, trust in the Lord to work extraordinarily. You are in an extraordinary situation. On the other hand, test your heart and seek, if at all possible, to become free. Try to form a long-term strategy. Seek a way that you can have this. Maybe be bold and ask. It does make a difference for your godliness, for your family, for the church community. It does. The first thing that you do that is ministry to the body is simply even being with God's people. Not just here, but being available the whole day. To those, uh, really all of us here, I want to appeal to you, go before the Lord, not just today, but continually, study this issue and seek to structure your life around the idea around this principle of embodying on this day a foretaste of glory. Here a passage from Isaiah, final passage. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, the Lord says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing whatever pleases you on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you call the Sabbath a delight, if you put aside the idle talk and the needless things, 
I will make it a blessing. Delight in me. I struggle with this too. You know, it's so much easier to come up with a list of everything you're not supposed to do outwardly. That's so much easier. What's much more difficult is forming a habit of desiring and seeking the Lord all day long on Sunday or serving him all day long. You think of things like having, it's, I don't want to lay, this is pastoral counsel. That's all it is. I don't want to lay a burden on you. But can you imagine if it was regular in the congregation that the majority of people who didn't have children under five just said, you know, once a month we're going to have people over to our home on Sunday. We just build it in. We build into our lives the opportunity for discipleship, for enfolding. Then we say, you know what, I'm going to set aside one hour or two hours every single Sunday to study the Bible and 30 minutes to pray and maybe an hour to read a good book and maybe two hours to go have great fellowship with people. What is actually stopping you? What actually stops me? overwhelmingly, we don't actually want the things of the Lord as much as we would like to think we do. That's a fact. I'm including myself. Even this morning, as if to, you know, just, the, the Lord has his way. Even this morning, one of the first thoughts I had when I woke up, I was, okay, I gotta go through my sermon once. Oh, if there's any time left over, I can look at that review of this thing that I'm interested in purchasing. Then immediately, that is, I can't ever get that time back. And the Lord has promised to bless those who seek him in faith. And so I just exhort you, don't approach this negatively. Approach it positively in faith. How will the Lord bless me, my family, my church family, my culture, if we make much of the Lord on this day? He cannot lie. The Lord has spoken. Let's ask him even now to help us. Heavenly Father, You desire more good things for us than we ever seem to have an appetite for because our faith is so small. But you are powerful and your Holy Spirit cannot be defeated in all that you purpose. We ask that you would grant us, through the conviction that you've wrought this hour, fresh resolve this day and next Sunday and the Sunday after that until glory to make much of you. We thank you for the relative freedom given to us under the new covenant that we don't stand in fear of the kind of heavy punishments that really drew home the the weight of your law. But on the other hand, Lord, help us not to make light of this day of honoring the resurrection and honoring our hope of future glory. Give us wisdom to know which things to let slide on this day, whether that be dishes or, or work, and which things to make the, uh, the exception, because they are necessary. In everything, lead us according to the law of love. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.